Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And uh, to begin with, I would like to thank some of our fellow saloners who made donations, either uh, directly to the salon or by buying a copy of my pay-what-you-can audiobook, my novel, The Genesis Generation. And these generous souls are Eric R., Jeffrey S., Joshua M., Franklin H., Paul D., Katua, Paul W., JLR Murals, and I'd also like to thank Carl S. and the rest of our fellow saloners who have contributed to Dennis McKenna's Kickstarter project, which uh, I'll mention again at the end of this podcast. Also, there is uh, one of our fellow saloners who has gone way over and above the Call of Duty, and that is John J., whose second donation this year has now made him one of our top four all-time donors, someone I think of as a patron. And uh, here's a note that John sent along with his very generous check. I'd like to read that for you now. Hey, Lorenzo, just finished listening to the last two Bruce Damer talks that you put up, and it certainly helped to snap me out of the bad funk that I was in. In gratitude, I'd like to give you another chunk of my corporate slave wages to help cover your costs, because quite honestly, I wouldn't be the rock star programmer that my company thinks I am if I didn't have the salon to lift my spirits here in my gray-walled cubicle. Thanks again for your work and dedication. Sincerely, John. Well, John, your letter uh, really touched me, and uh, particularly in view of the fact that I too spent many a long, dull year in a gray-walled cubicle cutting code, although uh, I never did make it to the Rockstar League, and uh, that's probably why I eventually got sidelined into management. (laughs) But that's another story. My point in reading John's letter is to emphasize that we all have to continually find ways to hold ourselves together, whether it's the salon, other podcasts, music, reading, or whatever. As world events continue to unravel at an ever-increasing speed, it's uh, you and me and the rest of the psychedelically inclined thinkers on this little planet who uh, I think are going to be the ones who are likely leaned upon by our friends and families when things get really strange. And most likely that's going to be sooner rather than later. And don't think that you weren't meant to be one of the strong ones. The fact is that you wouldn't even be listening to these podcasts if you weren't a long-term survivor. Instead, you'd be out chasing that ever-elusive material dream. So uh, to John and to all of us current and former cubicle workers, factory workers, professionals, farm workers, and military women and men, all of which occupations I've had at one time in my life or another, Well, uh, I guess almost all of them. Uh, I was a military man, but not a military woman. But then I guess you could have figured that out on your own. At least I hope so. Anyway, uh, all kidding aside, I want to thank you all for having the courage to get up and go at it again each and every day. I know how hard that can be sometimes, and uh, you're all heroes in my book. Now, uh, as promised in my last podcast, today I'm going to play part one of the last interview that Terrence McKenna gave before his untimely death in April of 2000. As I mentioned last week, we have three people to thank for the opportunity to play this interview. First of all, it began when fellow saloner Alex Chuck Wall took it upon himself to get permission to play it here in the salon. And with the help of the Traveler, they were able to make the two CD set of recordings available for me to play here in the salon. 
So after they uh, contacted me to let me know that, uh, I asked Eric Davis if it was okay with him. For, as you know, Eric Davis is the one who actually conducted the interview for Wired magazine. And uh, here's what Eric had to say. Hey man, go for it. I own the tapes. The CD we made has long ago sold out, though I still have a few copies, so let it fly. Not sure if you're going to introduce the interviews, but please just mention my name and Wired's name. Let me know when you release them so I can send folks that way. I know there are already chopped up versions floating around the MP3 verse, so I'm glad that this dude made some continuous tracks. Cheers, Eric. And uh, thank you to the three of you for making this important piece of our tribe's history available to all of our fellow Saloners. And in particular, I, I do want to again thank Eric Davis because uh, it was Eric back in 2003 who was the first speaker to agree to talk at my initial Palenque Norte lecture series at the Burning Man Festival. And it was Eric who was also very instrumental in helping me to get some of the other speakers involved. People like Daniel Pinchbeck and Allison and Alex Gray. You see, uh, it was out of the Palenque Norte lectures that this little psychedelic salon project has grown. And uh, so I give Eric a lot of credit and thanks for his uh, longtime support of the salon and of our Burning Man projects. And now, without any further ado, let's join Eric Davis and Terrence McKenna in Terrence's home sometime around the end of October 1999. And in about six months' time after this interview, Terrence would be gone. And as you will now hear, although hope for his survival at the time was still quite high, the effects of his recent brain surgery and the multiple medications they were giving him seemed to have worn him down a bit. But while it isn't the same old bouncy Terrence that we know and love, I think that you'll be amazed as I am at the power of the mind of Terrence McKenna, along with his ability to make complex ideas understandable, both of which powers stayed with him right up until the end. Now let's join Eric Davis for an introduction to the last interview of Terrence McKenna. I'm Eric Davis, and I had the great good fortune of spending a few days with Terrence McKenna and his girlfriend Christy Silnes in their jungle home on the island of Hawaii in November 1999. Sadly, the occasion was not so fortunate. McKenna had been diagnosed with a brain tumor the previous summer, and he was home recovering from a recent craniotomy. I was there to profile him for Wired magazine, and it turned out to be the final interview he gave before his death, the age of 53, in April 2000. McKenna's home lay along a rutted road that wound its way up the slopes of Mauna Loa from the South Kona coast. It was a white, modernist origami structure topped with a massive satellite dish and a small astronomy dome designed to house a telescope that McKenna could not yet afford. The house and gardens were surrounded by a riot of vegetation, but among the native flora lay thick ropes of Banisteriopsis copy and a sprinkling of flowering Salvia divinorum. Every morning I ascended a spiral staircase decorated with blue LEDs to get to the study, where McKenna spent the bulk of his time, either working on his Macintosh or sitting cross-legged on the floor before a small oriental carpet, surrounded by books, smoking paraphernalia, and twigs of sage he occasionally lit up and wafted through the air. His library was magnificent, thousands of books on alchemy, Tibetan art, Hindu metaphysics, systems theory, archaeology, astronomy, and, of course, psychoactive lore. During the day, I asked the usual reporters questions, but in the evening we would relax and follow less quotidian pathways through the cosmos of conversation. McKenna rose to the occasion of his own mortal condition, 
and though he tired quickly and occasionally spaced out, he was as brilliant and funny as ever. What follows are edited portions of these dialogues. So, what was your uh, what was your uh, your first like encounter, like with psychedelics, either in a strong way or just? Well, was a friend of a friend of mine when I graduated from high school, and they were building that band. So he insisted that we eventually smoke pot and take acid and. Uh, and I had never encountered old lefties or acid heads or musicians or people who gave a shit about any of this stuff before. It was all new to me. I had just come from Colorado to the West Coast, so I was easily swept into all of this. And, uh, yeah, he and his friends were into... Uh, who was that strange heroin-based comedian? Lenny Bruce. No, no, not Lenny Bruce. Stranger, more heroin-based. <laughs> the the guy who did the thing about Dinez. Lord Buckley. Oh, okay. Yeah. And they were into all of this stuff. And I had been studying the Evergreen Review for... A couple of years trying to figure out what was going on with the culture, but when I finally got to the scene and all this acid and all this left-wing politics and all that, then I understood. And so anyway, so you got so he turned he turned he basically turned me on. And uh, were you kind of fascinated from the get-go? Well, I'd been worrying about mescaline since I'd read. Doors of Perception three or four years before. And I'd also read um, Havelock Ellis's The Dance of Life, which has a long chapter on mescaline. Actually, that that passage in Havelock Ellis, it's only a page or so, is one of the most uh, seducing passages in all of psychedelic literature. They were. T he was taking peyote at the turn of the century. These are the people who really got into the under the wire. People who took it a hundred years ago. Can you imagine? That is hard to grab hold of. <laughs> <laughs> but you, were you always sort of partly as much influenced by uh, the kind of alchemical, mystical book, historical books you read? in some way as as well as like the more primal evolving well i was raised by catholic rationalists so you know it's hard to square that in other words you would run around spending part of your time trying to understand the nature of guardian angels and the rest of the time grappling with fairly rational concepts i mean my family's basic orientation was mining and not science in the sense of degreed science but my father was an electrician my uncles ran radio and television repair shops and my father flew navigated did radio so uh, but I did spend a lot of time grappling with shit like 
the nature of the soul, and the nature of sin, and the, all of these imponderables, you know. And of course, what you end up doing is you end up reading scholars of mysticism. And then I would read about what John of the Cross or somebody else got hold of, and then I would try for it. And I don't recall getting too far, but... Uh, when you were still quite young. Right. Yeah. When you were, so you were still thinking in a Catholic mode. Yeah, because it was all religious mysticism. Right. There was no other form of mysticism before... I guess before Huxley published his books. I mean, it was somehow... Uh, well, for Catholics, there was no other form of mysticism. There was Ospenskyitis mm -hmm. and Grigifianism and all these peculiar... But none of that was quite kosher. Was <laughs> <laughs> did, you, so did, you, did you have a... Uh, a break with Catholicism, or did it just mutate into all of your... It sort of mutated. I read Jung, is what happened. I read... I first read Psychology and Alchemy, and that led me on to um, the other one, which is deeper about all of that. It's something about the nature of the Christos and alchemy. And, and then mm. I saw what the how these geographically defined religious impulses could be part of some broader, deeper thing. And alchemy, it was a revelation to me, all that. I didn't get religious history from the church the way I got it from Jung. Because from Jung I realized it was books. And so you could read these books. I mean, it was torment, tortuous. It was when I was first going to Cal. But on the other hand, I had a library card, and I could actually get at this stuff in whatever form it can never be gotten at. I mean, alchemy makes no sense at all if you actually read the literature. Right. So when you decided to start speaking, or doing these conferences and speaking on the radio... Did you have a sense of your of a kind of mission? Well, I always felt people should know about psychedelics, that that was the untold story, you know, that if there was anything new to be said or brought into the cultural dialogue, it was the news that these psychedelics were not these very tricky to manufacture drugs like LSD, but that it was really about plants. And I don't know if I would say I had a sense of mission. I certainly thought it was a fine idea that people realize. And I was also interested in feedback. You know, it wasn't that I wanted to enlighten people. I wanted to hear what people had to say about this stuff because to me it was all so confounding. The transformations of language, the what it did to information. I mean, that's still what psychedelics are about. It's what it does to information. So, you know, t talk about that a little bit. How do, how do you... Well, it seems to show some kind of... Uh, how would you put it? Some kind of 
universality of source or some some uh, language is not syntax it's not grammar it's none of these things it's some kind of divine uh, you could almost call energy which flows out of objects and situations everything wants to communicate and so then what the chain of being is is somehow handing connectivity on you know to the next plant animal human being work of art whatever it is and uh, I'm, I still grapple with what all this means. And to me, it's the most psychedelic part of the psychedelic experience is when you get the, the logos coming out of the trees, the rocks, the berries, the water, and everything. And it's the most Taoist part of it. It's where nature becomes transparent to its own intent to communicate or something like that. Do you, are you, uh, when you think back of what you felt like you were involved with in, you know, in the, in the mid-70s in terms of propagating the psychedelic experience, and you sort of felt that this is, you know, in a way you were be, being one of a number of Johnny Appleseeds, uh, um, when you look now at what happened, you know, emerged from that, are you uh, disappointed in some ways? Or No, I don't think so. Considering the fact that uh, for the past year or so, or maybe longer, it's been legal to grow mushrooms in Holland and s- purvey them, I would say all the goals were met. The, the thing was brought into human cultivation. It'll never leave it. You know, it's... Uh, a very rare thing to be able to bring an organism into the human family like that. And when we found Stropheric Evensis, it was standing waist deep in cow shit. And now it's part of the human family of agricultural production. It'll never leave it. It'll always be part of global culture now. So. And do you think that, do you have the feeling that in some sense it will remain, at least for the foreseeable future, a somewhat marginal uh, road, like a path that a certain certain temperaments or uh, characters inside of the social matrix of, the, of reality have recourse to, but that n- don't really dominate? Sure, way? because if they really wanted a lot of psilocybin, you would do it differently. You would grow it in enormous vats of liquid that were the size of railroad cars and you would produce millions of hits within days of scaling up. So, uh, no, what it is is it's it's a folk technology at the margin of civilization and an underground technology for the production of... uh, these drugs, like I understand you can make methamphetamine out of Clorox and some other shit, I have no idea, but it sounds very similar, very simple. Well, so this kind of at the edge of things knowledge is very uh, critical to, and that's where the shamanism is in the culture. 
tricks of the trade. So uh, the shamanism enters because that's an inevitable... Well, these are esoteric secrets, how to make drugs. And the drugs are change minds and make money. So inevitably it's going to be part of where some kind of negotiation takes place. Negotiations like that rearrange the the morphology of the, the social or the well, the mind space of the people there. Well, what, what do you think constitutes a, a a postmodern shaman, someone who's legitimately doing shamanic work and not sort of acting out of fantasy or playing some game of us of like a soci- uh, identification with the other? Well, I think you have to be, you have to know your pharmacology and trust that you know it and then be, trust it sufficiently that you're willing to lead people with confidence through these places. These ayahuasca psychiatrists are very courageous. To, and have built up sets of metaphors and assumptions that I think are probably true or true enough uh, but it, you really it takes balls to hold your ground with this stuff you know that must have been interesting the sense that you were propagating the, the philosopher's stone to the to brethren and it was going many other places. Yeah. A lot of people were... No, that's what I meant. I mean, through, through the whole sort of network of free... Culture. Stores. Yeah. Well, and it wasn't so much the, the mushroom. It was the information. You know, the knowledge of the technique. It was like the atom bomb or something. It was not whether you had it or not. It was whether or not you knew how to do it. And uh, so it's interesting to see the way that other plants now. I mean, if, that, if uh, mushroom, the mushroom parasited on print pamphlet technology. Now the uh, more emerging plants that are re-encountered have a different well, so propagation the, device of of, meat, of information. If that's the forward. Yeah, in one case, uh, Brazilian cults. In another case, almost landscaping like salvia. Uh, I don't know if you've seen that those clumps of salvia on the road, but all the blue flowers and all that. Uh, yeah, the the mushroom is the most uh, insidious and amusing because it seems to uh, f- associate itself with human beings. Like, for instance, the, one of the densest psilocybin ecologies in the world is Oregon and Western Washington. Well, one of the main industries of those areas where these mushrooms are so dense is um, the production of sod to be shipped all over the country and world to, to be pushed into malls and hotels. Uh, lawns and golf courses to spread. So it's essentially an enormous economic engine for spreading psilocybin spores throughout the planet. What happens to people that lets them tune into a 
deeper level of intent that wakes them up from the spell of, of mere consumerism and the kind of subjectivity that is, you know, the manipulation of images and desires that constitutes consumerism and which dominates many people's lives. Well, then they probably head for, head for deeper values, either Buddhism, shamanism, their own, you know, whatever lies in their own ethnic uh, background. Because, in fact, civilization is a carnal. I mean, it's a cheap, it's a, it's a delusion of a solution. So anybody who sees past the front door probably wants really real structured values. And so that's where all the conservative resistance comes from. The fundamentalist Christians, Orthodox Jews, Buddhists, all of these people are saying, well, hey, wait a minute, we, we, we don't want to go down this path only so far. And that's probably a good break. Otherwise, we would create a civilization that was essentially a mall. And there's enough of that anyway. So in that sense, that, that turn towards deeper values, even if sometimes they take a conservative form, is ultimately a kind of healthy balance to just the sheer rush toward novelty. Yeah, yeah I think so. And do you see psychedelics playing a role in, in opening up that kind of... It depends on how it's presented. It depends on the psychedelic. Uh, the, if it comes along with some wizened 90-year-old Indian from South America, it's hard to see that we're abandoning ourselves to the, the trivial and the concocted. Uh, and so it's a marketing and packaging issue, basically. And, and so what would, what would that look like then if you, if, if you were... Well, I'd say the wrongly packaged version would be some kind of, like Castaneda is a formulaic cult. Do these things, take these drugs, follow these instructions and moral obligation will flee from your can. Uh, nobody can be that foolish. You know. uh, if, on the other hand, you, you, know, you sincerely pursue this stuff, grow the plants, try to understand it, try to revivify the rituals and figure out what it's all about, well, that's an authentic push towards spirituality. And a very authentic push towards spirituality. And probably fruitful. Do you think in that process, the the actual handling of the plants, growing them, getting to know their cycles, is uh, necessary? Yeah, because that's the level, that's the speed, that's the well, that's the speed on which nature makes this stuff brings it to the surface and invites its contemplation. And it's also probably the right speed at which to assimilate this stuff, to come to terms with it. So in that sense, part of the problem with synthetic 
psychedelics is that they fit too easily into a kind of consumerist model right. that it's not a product you know it's not something you get the drug of the month or something uh, although all these things have been proposed and some have been tried uh, it seems to me the the shamanic drug of the month is not a very appealing idea what are the um, uh, emotional psychological ethical expressions of really kind of genuinely long-term good psychedelic people what is the long-term ethical expression of the good of psychedelic people yeah well it's some kind of it's some kind of effort to separate shit from shinola in other words it's uh, some kind of effort to distill uh, a, rash, a, a truth from the blooming, buzzing confusion of the universe. So it's a branch of, I don't know what you would say, cognitive science or something like that. It's a, an effort to define the human essence away from its content or something like that. And you see what I mean? Explain a little more. Well, it's a, it's a branch of psychology. It's a self-study in psychology. So anybody who's taking psychedelics is, I assume, trying to present a truer image of themselves to other people and the world through this process of um, distillation of understanding. And that's where the connection to alchemy and all that comes in. This distillation of essence away from the dross confusion and Gnostic muck of the world is a kind of... Uh, like a union individuation process or something like that. And that, and that manifests in the, in the call, even in normal life, to present it yourself, articulate yourself, oneself differently. I think so, yeah. And causes people to be willing to take chances, uh, both pharmacological and sociological, by being involved in something so marginal. You know. Because in the in the big civilizations, this kind of shamanic stuff is definitely very marginal. Most people just don't do it. Do you feel that that characterizes the overall or in some significant way the kind of people that you've met for the last... It depends on how often they do it. You know, some people are doing it because their friends are doing it. Some people are doing it because some... I don't know, they're <laughs> feeling some kind of social pressure. But the people who are really called to do it are rare. <clears throat> you know, the people who say, well, I get loaded ten times a year on high-dose psychedelics or six times a year. That's a lot. I mean, that means yeah. your lifestyle is pretty much defined by, by all that hmm. stuff.
Yeah, I would love to know what the real numbers are. How many people a year get really loaded once you get the Amazon Indians out, you know, the Mexicans out, and a few of these people out. It's hard to even know how you begin to make an estimate. You know. um, Before your sickness, how often did you do large journeys? Mm, Less and less often. I mean, I noticed that through the 90s. uh, But maybe four or five times a year. But I always felt never enough, you know. Never enough. So do you have the sense that the the tripping you, on some level, are getting... uh, Getting something done. The tripping is getting something. Yes, there's something being worked out, like continuously and progressively. Yeah, I assume that basically the download called history, meaning all the technology, social innovation, philosophy, art, fashion, architecture, is some kind of dialogue with this. Well, higher minds, I'm not entirely comfortable with that, but this higher mind that keeps showing these different facets through the mist. I mean, that science and and psychedelic and all this is a dialogue with the mathematical deep structure of nature. And that somehow as you get that out, there's this sense of progress, more than a sense of progress, progress. And I don't... And, uh, you know, in terms of what is it all leading toward or what it's about, it, it must be something about, like, the spiritualization of matter, that matter is evolving toward quintessence or essence or something like that. And, you know, we're the startled witnesses to this thing because we're part of this stuff that I called emergent properties or, you know, the, the uh, side effects, you could almost say, of the universal emergence of matter into spirit. Because that's what biology is. I mean, I think biology is uh, the quantum mechanical uh, magnification of uncertainty into macrophysical space so that essentially we're chemical systems that by some means yet to be understood amplify quantum mechanical uncertainty into dimensions such as we see and that permits um, these emergent properties and systems and morphologies to to show themselves and and that's the trick or that's the trick explained on one level you know it's funny in your raps you you stay away from uh, what to a, lot, to a lot of people would be would consider spirituality in a in a way like uh, the way that somebody would present their you know 
Jewish spirituality or kind of Buddhist practice or whatever. You don't talk. In fact, often you sort of like you slag the the guru model, and you kind of separate yourself from that. And you really have a kind of like you maintain the sort of I don't know, I don't want to quite characterize it right now, but um, and yet at, at points obviously you're, you are motivated by something that in your own language you might you would call spiritual. Well, what what is what comes up around that word? I guess I believe I'm some form of progressive history. That history is progressive. So then, the story of evolution and biology and human culture and all this is assumed to be a story with a happy ending. So in a way, this belief in telos which is not philosophically sanctioned or, or this eschatological vein in my personality is what gives it a spiritual impulse. But it's the idea that time... It's an alchemical idea, actually. It's the idea that time will perfect matter. And uh, I think it probably will perfect matter. What do you think about... Do you think that like postmodern spirituality is a sort of legitimate term or, or project? You mean to believe or involve yourself in or believe? It's not really about belief. I I I mean that whatever the kind. Of, I mean, there's a lot of people now who are developing relationship with all different kinds of spiritual practice, and they're not really doing it even in the way that people did. In the 70s, where there was so many, so much more true believing, it's it's a different kind of relationship. It's probably on a short spin, a short cycle that a lot of empiricists are taking up Dzogchen, mm-hmm. and that how long can that go on? Uh, so then there'll be a lot of revisionism and rethinking and recasting of all this, which is the very best thing for it. Yes, it is. So were you ever very interested in meditation or yoga? Uh, when I was in India and immediately before I went to India, when I was in the Seychelles the first time, <coughs> I, I was because when I was in Mombasa, Kenya, I came upon this place called the... I can't remember. Anyway, it was a library that was basically having a bargain sale in theosophical literature. So I took about 50 kilos of, uh, of uh, yogic uh, Arthur Avalon theosophical literature with me to the Seychelles. And that was what I read and worked through when I was out there. How is it that you relate to mysticism, to mystical experience? Oh, you mean as a source of valid data about what's going on? Not even that far. I mean, that's that's one way of saying, of, of judging it in one way or another. And it's, it doesn't necessarily be valid data. It's just, I mean, you've been interested, I mean, this library, obviously, mysticism is completely surrounding us. Well, I guess I would say the more personal the mystical indicator is, probably the more likely I am to take it seriously. In other words, it seems to me if you extrapolate your mystical insight beyond the personal, you probably enter into the domain of inflation, of some, some kind of psychological inflation. And 
So was Plato inflated? Was Plato inflated? No, probably not, but he probably gets a pass as uh, some kind of uh, pioneer. <laughs> <laughs> you could just start out, you know, start out by talking about the, the relationship between technology and, and shamanism. Well, you remember Iliad's basic book, which is Shamanism, the Archaic Techniques of Ecstasy. That book was originally written in French, and in French, as I don't have to tell you, the word technique has this dual meaning of both a way to do something and a technology. So, uh, from Iliad's point of view, shamanism was always about using techniques uh, to achieve these, what he called, ruptures of plane. And these ruptures of plane were these breakthroughs into these healing spaces. And for him, it was always drugs, yoga, or uh, ordeal, or maybe yoga slash ordeal. So, uh, in a way, pushing on the frontier of language and pushing on the frontier of, of technique always brought some form of breakthrough. I mean, I suppose the perfect example would be fire, where fire must have been something... We talked about the Smith thing yesterday. But so fire, technology, the transformation, the visible transformation of materials through heat, and all of that leads straight into better weapons, stronger building materials, and uh, so forth. So, uh, I mean, can you do you see then that even though the West turns away from the worldview of of pre-modern enchanted the enchanted universe is that there's still something in that process of technological development which has which is linked to those older technologies well the way chips are made and the way solid state objects are assembled often is just a matter of <clears throat> bringing a, a mix of materials to a certain temperature and a certain uh, proportion of materials and then standing back and letting the laws of physics rearrange the atoms so that electricity or information or something flows through this in an unexpected way. So I think we're still involved in discovering what can be coaxed from the from the physical world just by letting physical laws unravel themselves. And that seems to you connected with an old, the, 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 the operation of doing that goes farther back than just modern science. Yeah, at low temperatures it's about psychoactive drugs and brewing and combining biological materials and then at higher temperatures it becomes about this other thing. And one of my alchemical readings of modernity is that electricity is a kind of element 
in the old sense of element. And that it has certain properties that evolve as you develop almost a shamanic relationship with it in the sense of using it and developing a relationship with electrical potentials. Uh-huh. And that that sets up a kind of, that interjects a kind of life into the human organism that fundamentally changes it because it's introducing this element of electricity which has certain properties of communication. I mean, electricity is very strange. It's pretty far out stuff. You just laid out like electricity to somebody and just kind of said, these are how these fields work and they're not actually... It's like total science fiction. We're just sort of used to that story. Right. But it's an amazing thing. And that those potentials are being then introduced into human communication. So that fundamentally changes them. And I think spiritualism is like a reflection in the archetypal imagination of modernity about the kind of communication that is introduced by electricity. Interesting. It's sort of, you know, McLuhan had this idea about the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Ghost, was electricity. And the the covering of the earth by the matrix of uh, the Holy Ghost had initiated the third world age and all this. Right. And that picks up a line of thought that's been carried through since the since it first starts. I mean, the, right. the idea of electricity is born in an, in an alchemical imagination. It's born at a, at a pre-point uh, to the, the sort of royal society break or whatever you want to call the, the genuine scientific uh, transformation that split alchemy into the shadow realm of culture. But uh, in uh, it comes up in that alchemical matrix. In Mason-Dixon, there are scenes in Philadelphia in the 1770s in, in coffee houses where uh, electricity is being sold as a drug. You pay your money and then you grab onto this thing and they rip this thing around until it throws you off and you pick yourself up off the floor and then go back and pay again and get more. Just this insane scene. <laughs> it's funny to say, but you look at 20th century science, and, it, uh, and even though its its story has nothing to do with alchemy, that it really is this kind of fulfilling of visionary notions about the way that matter and energy and mind could be stitched together. Well, and it turns out it's all true. I mean, what 20th century science proved is you can actually do almost anything. And so, you know, you want to change lead to gold, you want to create life, you want to store information in crystals, all these things. It's now come to pass, and much, much more besides uh, proving that matter is really magical material that you can pull off all these tricks with. So what is it about the alchemy that really kind of got you? The surrealism of it, the the shifting imagery, the associational um, yeah, the associational schemas are very attractive. They are. What is be, what do you think is behind them? Well, you know, the basic concept is that somehow intuition and nature are reflective of each other 
until that hypothesis fails, we should probably hang on to it. Uh, because look how far we've gotten. I mean, it is really bizarre how much of nature the human mind seems to be able to understand. I mean, my God, instruments are circling around Ganymede based on some guy in a powdered wig looking out his crenellated window, you know, figuring out this shit. How did they pull that trick off? Well, I mean, that, I mean, that gets that whole thing about the the sort of destiny of, of technology or the way that it... I mean, it's... Yeah, it's like a white cane and you're just feeling forward into the universe, you know. And, uh, you know, what is it all leading toward? How do you, uh, in your own head, have come to, let's say, reconcile those two sides? The, the side that's... Uh, mystical or fascinated by these questions of the soul or, or the, the things that are beyond reason and the intuition and, and the, the, the way that you re- relate to reason at least as it's it, it, it sort of expressed through a certain kind of skepticism and a certain kind of uh, uh, love of science. Well, I think I still believe what the angel told Descartes, which is, you know, nature is understood through the coordination of uh, measurement and proportion. So really, nature is the study of uh, proportion and the making of measurement. And there doesn't seem to be any problem in any... We have very powerful instruments for taking measurements and very powerful instruments now for modeling and constraining the data. And we're making progress. I mean, I I think, uh, you know, in terms of stuff like the Internet, human longevity, recovery of energy sources and all this sort of thing, that that humanity is probably in great shape for the next hundred years if anybody gives a shit but uh, that kind of time scale so you're not uh, as sort of overwhelmed with a kind of dystopian scenario it's just obviously an easy thing to do when contemplating the future yeah I think that dystopian in the sense of losing control of uh, primary processes inside civilization and so having like disease, fascism, economic breakdown, problems like that. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm pretty high faith in systemics. Do you see the Internet as being both... Is that, is that more of a hopeful direction, or can you see it also exacerbating the, the problem? No, I think it's more of a hopeful direction. My My... The happy story I like to tell myself about the Internet is someone in some tiny village up in Ontario or in Kenya or in Brazil somewhere who gets next to the Internet and realizes, you know, I can get out of this preposterous scene by simply, if I'm ambitious, if I just unleash my own ambition, and the educational power of this, then I can 
go to the large city and conquer, go to the capital and export myself to somewhere else. And, and I assume this has happened. Because, you know, you meet in the third world incredibly ambitious people who only by their circumstance are confined. Well, if you rearrange their their circumstance, so if they want a degree in electrical engineering, all they have to do is be online night after night after night. Um, that's pretty exciting. So how do, how do you see that changing the kind of the cultural matrix or the, the emerging global culture? Well, hopefully it gives it a more international flavor and people realize that there is an I don't want to use words like a natural elite of native intelligence or something like that. But in fact, there is something like that. I mean, smart people would be a fine thing to put them in charge for a while and see if that does any good. Uh, I mean, they're taking charge where the money is, but that's not a very deep value. Uh, what if they took charge where the power and the and the actual, uh, well, the, the morphogenetic intent was coming from uh, the design process. This is what. But do you see that happening? I mean, are, are you? I mean, if that's sort of your vision, you must be a little concerned about the uh, evident power of money and pure greed to drive, largely drive development, rather than design principles with an eye towards the future and social equity and eco you know, ecological improvement. Yes, except to some degree, except that it is a... Um, people who, you know, Mao said or somebody said, to get rich is glorious. I'd say to get rich is modestly uh, affirmable <laughs> something like that uh, there's no sin in getting rich uh, as long as what you're doing is not you know making people into lampshades or something like that uh, uh, it's better than a collectivist goal of some sort it seems to me how do you feel about that conjunction of media manipulation, money, and celebrity that's so dominant now? Well, you have to have something to sell. You know, you have to have something people actually want. I mean, if you're selling the Rolling Stones or you're selling Charles Manson or you're selling something like that, you might get somewhere. But inherently, you can't sell that which is eternal or it becomes, uh, it turns against itself. So, um, and that's what defeated fascism. Nobody wanted it. It was ugly, ultimately. It's probably what defeated socialism. Cinder block housing facilities, you know, and all this rhetoric about the, I don't know, social planning ran off the cliff in the 20th century. Maybe because there were too many people, or too much money, or not enough money, but uh, something defeated all these um, 
utopian visions of how people might have lived. That's what I'm hoping doesn't happen in the next 25 years. What, what doesn't happen? That some lack of resource or vision doesn't reveal that uh, we can't give enough people uh, a bearable life. So we have to live forward into an age of revolution, social turmoil, and, and struggle for resources. It doesn't have to be this way. Do you see it going in that direction? Toward that kind of a struggle? That's my concern, that uh, people and institutions not respond to need. And, uh, and then what you get is a have-have-not situation. I mean, you wouldn't want the first half of the 21st century to look like the first half of the 20th century, you know, the, the equivalent of a Bolshevik dialogue, the equivalent of uh, whatever soft leftism turned out to mean and be, uh, because it turned out to mean and be not bloody much, as far as I can tell. And there was a lot of labor unrest, some amelioration of some people's uh, you know, dilemma in the system, but the world is far richer than it appears to be, and that wealth is not being, uh, is not trickling down or flowing down or making nearly as many people's lives as good as it could be. So far, it doesn't seem to have gotten out of hand. I mean, most people, if you give them a lot of money, they buy second homes and collect art. Well, this is not exactly like hunting down Serbs uh, with your shotgun or something. These entrepreneurial capitalists, this is what they're doing. I mean, they're building um, vast wealth downstream for their children. It's probably, you know, sort of like the invention of very large and stable sailing vessels. Whenever that happened, 200 or 100, 250 years ago, where suddenly a whole bunch of people realized, you know, all we need is some money, not too much money. If we buy a ship and send it out to Indonesia and bring back a load of nutmeg, our children's children's children will never work again. We need one load of this ship. And, uh, and they have to work, of course, and then they get a certain lifestyle and a certain amount of social respect out of it. But I think what they really get out of it is the satisfaction of knowing that they've secured for their heirs uh, a comfortable existence unto the ninth generation or something. Well, it's interesting about that because that ties in with the genetics. If you, if you buy into some evolutionary psychology, certainly at this stage of the game, one of the forms that that would take is not merely like the logic that guides your, how you choose a mate and the fact that your status and money might, you know, if you're a male, bring you a, a, a foxy or younger babe than the, the schmo who's, you know, shoveling shit. Um, that one form that that would take would, of course, be to maintain your 
your uh, genetic line in as you know, you know, great a situation as possible. Well, and now people understand that this is what your genetic line is about, that to cope or to be in a Darwinian position of competition in this society means to have money, and not a little, not sufficient, but plenty, so that when you need to arrive and be met by Rolls-Royce limousines or whatever, that it's not an issue and this all comes down. Uh, but do you, do you see that there's also kind of madness to that? To that. Yeah, I'm not motivated. I mean, as you see, I need a place to keep some books dry. Having achieved that, my motivation <laughs> falls to pieces. And it's, all right, what else do we need to keep dry? Some firewood, okay, a truck, okay. That's about as far as I can go. <laughs> you know, the way that technology, that the Internet would allow you to build a different kind of career because you don't like traveling. And what were you working what are you working towards? Well essentially the philosopher's stone without any uh, draws. In other words, everything I require of the alchemical quintessence, the internet provides except physicality, which I didn't require. So that's what I meant, I think I said to you yesterday or the day before, that at times these technological developments have taken place that seem to me designed uniquely for my own satisfaction. Sputnik couldn't have worked better for me. Acid, rock and roll, um, small computers, large computers, the internet. Uh, so in my internal story about what's supposed to happen, everything is happening right on time, right on schedule. I mean, this is the thing that if you believe knowledge is power, which I certainly do, then the Internet is the dispensation. You know, the angels have landed, the aliens have unfurled their banner on this planet. And... Uh, now let's see if information can liberate. That's why I don't want to do something stupid like die and miss the whole unfoldment of this proposition that knowledge is power, information will liberate. And it will be settled in the next 10 or 15 years. Either they'll get a handle on it whoever they are, whatever a handle means, or it will slip from their control and it will be clear that some kind of dialogue is now going on between individual human beings and the sum total of human knowledge and that nothing can stop it, that some kind of renaissance, some kind of total new relationship to knowledge and and possibility is put in place. The the idea you had about, and you, I've heard you mention before, about somehow taking advantage of uh, the net to allow you to continue your career without having to move around so much. 
I mean, that seems to be one of the, the real weird paradoxes of the scene we're in, is that at the same time as we're creating all these great communicating devices, that people are flying around to conferences, to talks, even more than they ever have before. Yeah, well, I don't, re I don't really understand that. I mean, like this morning I was looking at the brain tumor list. Well, fully one-third of the brain tumor list is people planning get-togethers at the next brain tumor conference. Will you be going to Atlanta? Will you be going to Vermont? Are you going to London? So no matter whether you're in investment counseling or dying of cancer, you can turn it into a circuit of, of a life, a phenomenon of some sort. Uh, I'm not very interested in that. Well, you've done, this, you've done a circuit for a long time. I have, I have. And I feel like I've paid my dues. And I feel like you have to be visibly at some of these things because you're marketed as a personality. And, you know, I, I am not William Burroughs, nor was meant to be. Uh, but I am interested enough in being read that I'm willing to sign books and stand up and tell stories. I'm interested a little bit of how you use the net. Like you have, you say you spend maybe four hours a day doing email, but then also surfing. Well, basically, as an informational resource, an oracle, and and sometimes even almost like uh, a magical oracle. I mean, words will come to me, and so I'll search them and just follow the stuff where air it leads. So, I don't know, there's some term for that, I'm not sure what it is. Uh, but yeah, it's like a... Term for what, that's, that style of... Yeah, surrealists. I guess automatic writing, except this is automatic Searching. inquiry or something like that, where you just... Uh, cast bread upon the waters and see what comes back, you know. Do you, have, do you have, ever have the sense of, uh, as you develop um, that kind of relationship to it, that it becomes more alive? Well, it becomes more synchronistic in the way that, you know, people have said the I Ching seems eerily alive because it anticipates and it seems to respond like a thinking thing. So in that sense, it doesn't become so much more alive as it becomes more intelligent. So maybe really the key to bringing the, the net through is to discover universal grammars that cause it to appear uh, alive. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Now, I've listened to Terence's last word just now a couple of times, and am I hearing things, or does Terence's voice sound somewhat unusual here? Now, I won't say what it makes me think of, but I'm sure you already have some ideas of your own. Also, uh, let me quote what he had to say just before that, because I think it's really worth hearing again. He said, and I quote, 
Now let's see if information can liberate. That's why I don't want to do something stupid like die and miss the whole unfoldment of this proposition that knowledge is power, information will liberate. And it will be settled in the next 10 or 15 years. Either they'll get a handle on it, whoever they are, and whatever a handle means, or it will slip from their control, and it will be clear that some kind of dialogue is now going on between individual human beings and the sum total of human knowledge, and that nothing can stop it, that some kind of renaissance, some kind of total new relationship to knowledge and possibility is put in place. And, uh, you know, it's now been over 11 years since he said that, which means that if his prediction is to be considered, then we have to uh, keep up the pressure on all fronts and in every country to keep Internet access inexpensive and widely available to every person on the planet. By the way, uh, early in this uh, interview, you just heard uh, Terrence mention the mescaline experiments of Dr. Havelock Ellis. And if you're interested, I've located an 1898 essay written by Ellis that is titled Mescal, A New Artificial Paradise. And uh, I've linked to it in the program notes for this podcast. It's a truly interesting essay in which he documents the first time he tried mescaline, which was on Good Friday in 1897. And this actually may have been the first use of that substance outside of the Americas. In fact, uh, this well may be the world's first trip report written in English. So uh, you may find it worth your time to read if things like that interest you. And uh, as for their discussion about the virtue of online conferences versus in-person conferences, well, I have to admit to being on both sides of that issue. When I was working in the corporate world and earning a nice living, I could afford to go to quite a few workshops and conferences. And had I not attended these events, I seriously doubt if I would uh, even know some of the people who are now my closest friends. For example, it was at the All Chemical Arts Conference in Hawaii in September of 1999 that I first met Bruce Damer, Galen Brandt, John Hanna, and many others. And it was at the Palenque Conferences uh, before that even that I met Daniel Pinchbeck, the Shulgans, and most importantly, my wife, just to drop a few names. So you can see how important these physical gatherings have been in my life. Yet, the problem with them is that they're quite expensive to attend, particularly if you are unemployed, and even if you are employed but have to travel to get to them. And that's not the fault of the conference organizers, by the way. Uh, These things are just plain expensive to produce, and more often than not, uh, they lose money that their organizers have to come up with on their own. So, the concept of online virtual conferences holds great appeal for me as well. And I hope that some of them will begin to pop up on the same scale as the in-person conferences. I've made uh, virtual appearances at a few of them over the years, and I'm sure that many, if not most, of the speakers on the psychedelic circuit, if there is such a thing, would uh, participate without charging a speaker's fee for uh, large, properly organized online events. So uh, put your thinking cap on if the idea excites you, and uh, maybe go out on the GrowReport.com's forums and find some others to work with you and uh, put some of these online events together to see if a workable format can be found. But speaking of in-person conferences, there uh, is one that is being held this coming October 14th to the 16th, to be exact, and it's in New York City, which is uh, close enough to a large number of people that it should be an excellent place to find many of the others in your area. As uh, you might have guessed, it's the Horizons Perspectives on Psychedelics Conference, which is this year celebrating its fifth year. And uh, big congratulations go out to all the people who work on that important conference uh, for keeping the flame burning in the Big Apple for all those years. 
I'll have more to say about that as the date gets closer, but you can uh, keep up with their listing of speakers at their website, which you'll find at HorizonsNYC, that's H-O-R-I-Z-O-N-S-N-Y-C dot org. Well, that's going to do it for today, but my plan is that tomorrow I'll get the second part of this interview out to you and uh, not keep you waiting a week to hear the rest of it. And I'll be mentioning this again in more detail in my next podcast, but I want to remind you that there is still time to make a pledge to Dennis McKenna's Kickstarter campaign, uh, in which he hopes to raise funds necessary to write and publish a definitive biography of his brother Terrence. And uh, I'll again put the link to that campaign along with the program notes for this podcast, which you can find via psychedelicsalon.us. And uh, if you're interested in the philosophy behind the salon, you can uh, hear something about it in my novel, The Genesis Generation, which is available as a pay-what-you-can audiobook that you can download at genesisgeneration.us. And if you can't afford to pay anything, it's uh, available there for you for free. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. 